Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Normally, the density of cities makes them exciting places to live. But this same density has been a major problem during this pandemic. And it's not clear how many people who have fled urban areas will return when the COVID crisis is over. So what long-term changes can we expect to see in cities? And what can policymakers do to help urban areas weather this storm? I'm pleased to explore these questions today with Nicole Galinas. Nicole is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal, where she writes on urban economics and finance. She's also a columnist for the New York Post. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jim. Um, let's say we get a vaccine for the coronavirus tomorrow, and all the doses are distributed in a very quick and efficient manner. What is the long-term impact on New York City from this pandemic? Well, I think the long-term impact would extend far beyond getting a virus. Of course, we all hope that we have a virus, but I think that the last three months have changed people's behavior, maybe not permanently, because I guess nothing in this world is permanent, but certainly indefinitely. We're seeing more structural change than we're seeing temporary disaster change. And what does that mean? For example, are we going to come back to a world where white collar workers come to an office five days a week from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m.? Seems highly unlikely right now. Even if uh, the, the vaccine came into being tomorrow, New York City said, okay, everyone come back to work. I think it's fair to say that a lot of people and, and their employers and employees have found that they are pretty productive working at home. It's not that they have to work at home five days a week, but we may end up going to a model where people come in, say, two days a week, you know, one day to have external meetings, one day to have internal meetings, do the rest of their work at home, or even three days a week, which is a tremendous change for the foot traffic of Manhattan. I mean, the entire economic model of Manhattan is built on moving 4 million people to the island of Manhattan every morning, most of them on public transit, and moving those 4 million people out at the end of the day. So that is really uh, something that is at long-term term risk. I mean, this is more like the invention of the car than it is like a snowstorm in terms of its impact on the city. So that, I think, presents a problem. Uh, if Even if you have fewer people coming in, how are they going to get in? Are they all driving in their cars? Yeah. I mean, that's if we think about 76% of the people who come to Manhattan every day take some form of public transportation, most of them on the subways, buses, ferries, Bicycles, you know, bicycles are not really public transportation, but they depend on people being densely packed in together, which in turn depends on transit. If we went back to last fall and only 10% of the people who took transit decided, 
we're going to take cars into the city instead. That would mean a 30% increase in Manhattan traffic. And if we look to just the impact of tens of thousands of new Uber and Lyft cars, you know, a good decade ago, basically meant that Manhattan traffic came to a standstill over the past half decade. To think about another 300,000 cars versus a few tens of thousands of cars, it just doesn't work in a dense environment. So there are a lot of very difficult to answer questions. You know, do you want to discourage people from driving? Well, normally you do. But if you're discouraging them from coming back to the city altogether, then maybe you don't want to discourage that. But even if they drive, they're not going to be able to drive because there's not enough room for them. So, you know, a lot of uh, questions whose answers create new questions. Uh, questions upon questions. Uh, sort of the initial, I think, reaction from people who were, you know, who you know, were thinking about how cities are going to weather this crisis and what they look like on the other side. I think there was this instinctual uh, idea that cities, you know, cities are over. Uh, we're all gonna, we're all gonna move out to the suburbs. People in the suburbs are gonna move out to the exurbs. And it was just going to be catastrophic uh, for major cities, not just New York, but major cities around the world. Uh, and my flippant answer was, well, people have been coming to cities and dense urban areas for a long time. Uh, to think that, that cities are, are densely populated regions are all going to clear out seemed unlikely. Uh, I think people are still going to want to live in dense areas. I think people are still going to want lots of restaurants. People are still going to end up going to concerts. Uh, that there's these big trends over hundreds, thousands of years that we're probably not going to, we've had pandemics before, uh, that we're not going to be reversed. That's sort of my, sort of, you know, that's my, you know, my, my, my flippant answer. But what you've just described is a, a city and arguably the most important city in the United States. It doesn't isn't going to work the way it used to. And we don't know how it's going to work and we assume it needs to work. But like you said, a lot of questions, where are we on the answers or do we even know the right questions? Yeah. I think you raise a lot of uh, interesting stuff packed in there. And I think when we think about the world versus America, well-planned cities can survive this, but are any, American cities well-planned, you know, particularly a city that fits the definition of a city where most people rely on public transportation, not cars. And then and, and under that definition, a lot of American cities aren't really even cities. I mean, they're very car dependent. But if we think about what does it mean to be a well-planned city, you know, the, what, what places like Tokyo, what places like Seoul have done, you know, not perfectly, but continuous testing of asymptomatic people, shutdowns, kind of like spot shutdowns, for lack of a better term, when outbreaks uh, reappear, uh, competence con contact tracing, which is not what U.S. cities are doing. I mean, what, what we are doing is basically calling people up, hoping they might remember who they've been in contact with, not really requiring them to divulge their contacts. You know, it's not really contract uh, contact tracing like what, what Seoul and, and other cities are doing. Uh, so, and also, uh, 
uh, having a public that is willing to comply with these measures, which is a problem as we see both in dense cities in the U.S. and in more suburban and exurban places in, in the South and Southwestern U.S. So on any of these measures, are we fitting the definition of well-planned cities? Probably not. And I think that goes to longer term issues too. How are we going to fund a transit system that has lost, well, lost 90% of its ridership now, probably lost more than half of its ridership over the next couple of years. Other cities have national governments that are willing to provide this funding. So far, we, we really don't. And so, uh, you know, I think these are important issues when we talk about does urbanism work or not? Well, well-planned, well-governed urbanism uh, works. The other kind doesn't. And I would also say that there's always this impulse to say New York is always going to bounce back. It always bounces back. Actually, that's not true. I mean, we went through 15 years between the late 60s and the early 1980s where this is the last time we had to make an adjustment to a big structural change in the economy, which arguably this is. We didn't do it very well. We got very, very lucky in the early 1980s when Wall Street took off. Uh, yuppies started moving to the city. A lot of tax dollars requiring few tax services helped to rebuild the tax base to deal with other issues like crime and education a decade later. Will we see the return of both good economic luck and demographic trends that work in our favor where people want to live in these cities? You know, these are open questions. Um, I mean, I suppose people have short memories, but I have a feeling people are going to remember this pandemic and they it will sit inside their heads when they think about where to live. Uh, I don't think they're just going to quickly put it behind them. And if and to feel confident living in a dense area, especially if, if you have some you know flexibility about where you live, and it requires your confidence that an event of another outbreak and there's and you know there's been you know several of these uh, so far in the first two decades of the century, then that's going to require us to be very good about again you know about getting tests up and running being able to trace people, all these kinds of things that you that we've seen in, in places that have gotten this um, virus under control. I, why would I be confident at all that, that our reaction next time will be, well, I mean, we already have almost 120,000 dead. So I, I would want a reaction not just to be modestly better, but, you know, better by orders of magnitude. Where, you know, for, if I'm going to think about living in that kind of area and if I have a family, uh, I, I, I guess... I guess I'm I, I'm becoming more more pessimistic about American cities as we chat. Yeah, I think in the long term, and again, long term can be a long time. I mean, we're looking at more than a decade. Cities can adjust, but one of the keys to that adjustment is price adjustment. I think we're going to need, and we're already starting to see the inklings of 
a, a discontinuity in prices in terms of a reset of what does it cost to rent commercial office space? What does it cost to, to rent or buy a market rate apartment in New York City? What does the retail space go for? And it's very difficult to do this price adjustment on a large scale because of the amount of debt that is in the economy. Like if I look at the office building across the street from me right now, They've got a billion dollar mortgage. The mortgage doesn't amortize. So basically they're paying interest for 10 years. At the end of the 10 years, they have to come up with a billion dollars or convince somebody else to lend them a billion dollars. Their major tenant was actually moving before this pandemic to a new heavily subsidized office development called Hudson Yards. Probably a bad decision for the city government to subsidize office development when the vacancy rate was already 10%. And since the pandemic, their second biggest tenant, which is a global bank, has decided all of their overseas employees, including uh, their U.S. employees, are going to be working at home. So you're looking at a building that can't physically disappear, but that is really going to need to adjust the rents down to attract tenants that might want to take a different kind of risk than a global bank wants to take. But that probably requires defaulting on mortgage. And, and we have hundreds of buildings in this position. I mean, you're probably looking at hundreds of billions of dollars of commercial real estate debt adjustments, defaults, uh, same thing on the retail side, same thing, frankly, on, on the market rate housing side. So the faster we can do these price adjustments, you entice a new group of people to say, you know, it's 30% cheaper to, to live and work in Manhattan, so why not give it a shot? And of course, some of that contributed to the resurgence in the 1980s, you know, people buying uh, cheap houses and fixing them up. Uh, but to the extent that we want to extend and pretend our way through this crisis, that is going to be bad for cities. A lot of empty real estate at nominally expensive prices. Uh, you sort of alluded to this a couple times during our chat. How is New York doing before this crisis? Well, the sort of like traditional superficial way of looking at the city is that things had never been better. I mean, we had a near record population, near record transit ridership, a record 4 million private sector jobs. But I think there were a lot of problems under the surface. You know, first of all, you see all of these very poorly managed racial tensions, which it doesn't, uh, you know, it, it, the city and state have had basically democratic government for 40 years, but still didn't make the most obvious reforms on things like releasing police disciplinary uh, records. So when, when this killing of George Floyd happened on Memorial Day, it was maybe surprising, but maybe not so surprising to see how little goodwill there there was uh, between minority communities and the sort of political power structure in New York City. But I think beyond that, which is obviously a critical issue right now, things like the, the record amount of city spending that, that uh, has gone on under the de Blasio administration and frankly under the Bloomberg administration before it. You know, the city now wants to be like the employer of last resort and not furloughing people and not laying people off. And that's admirable, but they set aside almost no reserves to do this. I mean, 
if we had set aside 1% of city tax revenues over the past 10 years, we'd have a $10 billion budget cushion right now would be much, much easier for us to make decisions during this crisis. But we go into this with virtually no reserves. And so progressive government during the biggest economic boom that we've ever seen really, uh, in a boom that benefited New York City in terms of the Wall Street bailouts flowing into New York City during the early 2010s, you know, New York City is left today with very little to show for that in terms of uh, you know, budgetary cushion or investments in infrastructure that would have made us stronger. Of course, you have people in Washington who, listening to what you've just said, would say, it's, it's time for some tough love uh, for New York City and a lot of other, uh, a lot of city, uh, other cities around the country. Uh, we're not going to we're not going to keep it. We're not going to keep it going. We're not going to keep the pretend game going. Don't ask for help. You need to make tough decisions. Well, now this should now this pandemic should be a catalyst for making hard financial decisions. You'll get nothing from us. I mean, there's certainly a lot of people with that with that attitude. Why are they wrong? Yeah, I think there's I think it's quite reasonable to say we cannot bail out these cities and states 100%. I mean, you look at a place like Illinois where one of the state legislative leaders is saying, well, we need our pensions bailed out. Well, you haven't funded the pensions for 30 years. So, you know, that's a pre-existing problem. I think there's no question cities and states will need more aid from Washington. And also, frankly, not just cities like New York. I mean, if you look at Florida, Nevada, uh, Arizona, Texas, starting to see record hospitalizations and also economies that are heavily dependent on domestic tourism. I mean, you can't, like the top three markets for Florida tourism, South Carolina tourism are New York and California. So this, the economic impacts of this are not going to say, to stay in state, just like the the actual pandemic is is uh, moving from state to state in its acute uh, uh, phase now. But what should a federal rescue look like? I think these cities. And, and what and what are and what expectations should the rescuers have of the rescuee? Yeah, I think cities should start and states should start to draw up menus of essential services that they need to maintain their tax bases. And Washington should pay some share of the today's cost of those essential services, not pensions, not long-term costs, proportionate to how heavily they've been impacted by the pandemic. So, you know, your basic police, fire, sanitation, things like keeping public parks open so that kids have a place to pay, what is the specific cost on a day-to-day -day basis of those services? Adjust that for some kind of regional cost of living, but not, not for things like, well, you could retire after 22 years and, and, and get a 50% pension, but we haven't put the money away to save for that pension. Uh, and I also think that Washington should be funding a sales tax holiday. I mean, a full year sales tax holiday for all 50, well, 45 states would be 
would be about $500 billion if we were going to say, let's have a sales tax holiday for the month leading up to Christmas, where Washington just underwrites the costs of the state and local sales tax. Maybe that would be a big help to some of these retailers who, who really can't afford to lose the Christmas season or they'll, they'll be out of business forever. So if you were, well, let's just, you know, uh, I mean, I've written a lot about cities and I've talked to, you know, and I, you know, I view them as sort of these high productivity engines of the, you know, of the economy. And, you know, we've talked and I, and I, we've had many guests on talking about how to make cities more productive, how to make them denser, all of which, some of which look silly now since we're so worried about uh, density. But if you think cities are really important, um, not just, not just intrinsically important for the people who live there, but as sort of, you know, growth engines for the economy, what is sort of, you know, at least from the federal level, what else should we be doing to help cities or, or really isn't there? Is it fundamentally a state issue and it's a local issue and there's not a lot the federal government can do? I think another thing the federal government will have to start doing is indefinite operating aid for transit systems. I mean, that we kind of stopped doing this in the Clinton administration. It's kind of a myth that we stopped during the Reagan administration, but uh, Clinton was not that friendly to maintaining existing legacy mass transit. He wanted to do like marquee new infrastructure projects when a lot of what we need is just maintaining what we have. So I think well, transit systems from New York, Boston, San Francisco, Washington, they've got to basically run full service with a fraction of their fare revenue. That gap is going to have to come from Washington, you know, probably for the next five years. But in turn, Washington should create a commission and say, why can Europe and developed Asia provide transit at such a superior level for such a fraction of the cost that American cities do it because functional transit is like the key to future cities. And that's been a handicap in, in American cities for a long time. But I would also flip the question around and say, well, what if we don't help cities? Well, where are all these people going to go? I mean, are we going to create denser uh, mega regions in South Carolina, Florida, Arizona, in places that on many measures from the murder rate to traffic uh, crash fatalities to public health do much, much worse than, than Northeastern and Middle Atlantic cities. You know, if we're gonna have a population in rush to these places, and that is very poorly planned, we are just creating even worse longer term problems for places like Florida, Arizona, Nevada. One of my recent um, guests, uh, well, a couple of them, we've, I, we've, done, we've done a number of shows about, about you know, productivity and innovation, sometimes it seems like all the shows, but, uh, and there's some, they have some big ideas that the US should spend a lot more on federal uh, at the federal level on, on innovation, a lot more basic science, and they have all these like hundred billion trillion dollar plans. But they also want to take a lot of that money and try to create these science cities and hubs all around America. And not so much because they think they'll be fabulously successful because the history of such efforts is not great, but to create political support, create broad base of political support so that people aren't going to say, well, you want to spend all this money on innovation, but it's all going to go to, you know, it's all going to go to, you know, the Bay Area, it's going to go to New York, it's going to go to Austin. 
to tell people in this environment, especially with one party, does not seem to care very much about the uh, northeastern cities. Don't you need to sort of pair any of these ideas for increase, increased aid with ideas to sort of help, uh, you know, middle America, left behind areas? Do you have to do you think you have to sort of do that, too? And what, you know, have you given any thought to what that would look like? Yeah, I mean, I have no objection with more funding for basic research. I think it it, it does or, or any or any or any or anything else to kind of like figure out like all right, we're going to we're going to help out all these cities with their transit systems and we're going to give them sales tax holidays. Uh, you know, what do you, what about what about the rest of the country? I, what are you going to do for them? Aren't the I mean, those, those cities you may have think they've been doing fantastic. Uh, but what about all these, you know, other areas uh, in Ohio that, that you know that have been doing poorly? How are we going to help them too? So I'm saying that I think politically, do you sort of need to do both to, to, to get the other? Yeah, and if you look at places like Detroit, I mean, basically never recovered from the cataclysm of the 1970s. Started this off with a couple years of progress but in a very fragile situation compared to a place like New York. I mean, in Detroit, 7% of people rely on transit to get to work. If they don't have that option, a lot of people are just gonna drop out of the workforce. And so it is true that New York, even in its very uh, uh, sort of suspended animation state right now, has far more resources than most American cities. I mean, many, many cities, not just Detroit, never really recovered from the 1970s. I mean, even places that seem nominally successful, you know, Philadelphia, Kansas City, uh, still have uh, very serious revenue and economic development problems. And I think one of the good byproducts of this is that as more people in the tech industry and finance can work indefinitely at home, they can think about other places that they'd, they'd rather live and cheaper places and maybe move some of these higher paying jobs to different areas, maybe create smaller research uh, uh, next eye in places that we don't normally think about. Uh, but yeah, I think that this, the impact of this on weaker cities and urban areas is, is pretty significant. I mean, you know, back before the pandemic, whenever you hear about like crises of affordable housing, I mean, most cities have no affordable housing crisis. There, there are tens of thousands of units of, of near empty housing. And yet, yet I find myself repeatedly writing about uh, the housing crisis in certain cities uh, that that perhaps takes up too much of sort of my uh, my mental energy. So if we so what, let me let me end with this. So what is sort of the good news story, how this ends well, how new, if you're if we're going to look back in 10 years and figure New York and a lot of other big cities face this crisis, but now they are thriving, they're flourishing. They're, you know, they're the, you know, the, you know, America's crown jewels. What will, have, what will have happened fundamentally to make that, make that the case? I think the most con constructive approach is to use federal borrowing power to facilitate private sector price adjustment in these economies so that the private sector can do most of this adjustment 
by itself and cities can renew because people are attracted to uh, taking a risk on a cheaper city and a city that frankly, where more people can afford to live without having to make six figure salaries or be left living on the fringes of the city because they don't make six figure salaries. So federal money to tide over transit systems to provide some level of basic services and yes, support you know competence, uh, testing, tracing and so forth. But do not try to prop up these real estate values as if none of this happened, because then you're going to get a shell of a city within a few years. My guest today has been Nicole Galinas. Nicole, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jim. Thank you.